Are you looking for local handcrafted leather goods? Look no further than Skin on Skins, a local mission leather working shop. All original pieces handcrafted for you. Jackets, belts, purses, jewelry, everything made out of leather. You need your bicycle seat fixed? You want it in cool leather? Under can do it. You have a motorcycle that you want to fit out with side bags and cool stuff? Talk to Under. Go to SkinOnSkins.com. That's S-K-I-N-O-N-S-K-I-N-S.com. You just went to Folsom Street Fair and you don't have enough leather? Go see Under. Everything is handcrafted and understated quality. Fine leather handcrafted goods for all of your needs. He also does fixes. Maybe you love that jacket. He'll put the zipper back in. Talk to Under at SkinOnSkins.com at 20th and Mission. Check him out at SkinOnSkins.com. LSD, FAP, acid fapping, fapping it acid, acid fapping, fapping it acid, fap, 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 acid. Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping. What is flat black plastic? What could it be? It's exactly what you think it is. Flat black plastic. Vinyl. Records. Round. Played. Mixed. All for you every Saturday from noon to two. By Scotto Walker. Amazing artist. Music DJ. Vinyl enthusiast. That is flat black plastic. This is Tuchel Matters with Mute in the Radio. Big up to the number one station that rule the nation. Give it to me! My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, Write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders. Look good on camera. End all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And... Invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. Tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a paddle?
Hold on, hold on, hold on. I don't want to go through I'll it tonight. I'll tell you, all them grind hold time on. dudes ain't getting in. I got to go. Jay going to holler at you. Jay, oh, I'm telling you, they ain't getting in. Speedo, I thought That's you had a cast, though. He got a fat girl. Hey, your mama called and said your sister got sick at a rush into the Waffle House. Okay, this is the B, and we're um, <clears throat> here on Saturday morning, 2781 21st Street, corner of Florida, <clears throat> in the Mission. Played that last song by Killer Mike kind of by mistake. I was looking for a song called Insane, so <clears throat> some of that was pretty explicit. See if we can find that other insane one to play later on. This is the B, and you're listening to Mutiny Radio, Labor and Love show. A show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where where you work. You're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. Radiant. Radio Labor and Love, where the labor meets the road. Well, what are we looking at today? Of course, we have to look at the loss in Bessemer, Alabama, where workers are organizing to join <coughs> to join a union and. The union was voted down by about two to one. And we'll have some analysis of that actually by one of the one of the organizers who offers her opinion, her view on what happened and why it was lost. One thing we can certainly point to <coughs> is that immediately before the election, leading up to the election, Besides all kinds of dirty tricks that uh, Amazon played to 
resist the union, they hired a bunch of people. They hired thousands of people to come in and start working in Bessemer in order to dilute the union vote. Uh, get a lot of workers who didn't know the issues or get a lot of workers who would stay home and wouldn't come because they felt like they weren't involved yet. Not, not uncommon, but uh, the vote was, official vote was two to one, although um, because of a lot of votes that were challenged by the company, the real vote was probably more like 60-40. In any case, it wasn't a win. And we'll, f we'll hear about that. Why? Today we're t celebrating two people, giants in their, in their own world. Uh, Jackie Robinson, if you're a baseball fan, you might have noticed that Every player had on the same number yesterday, number 42. <coughs> it's not a mistake. <laughs> there was an, a, an email that went out and mistakenly told uh, every uniform provider to make a 42. 42 is Jackie Robinson. And the other important person is Dolores Huerta. Um, got an interview with Dolores Huerta about kind of summing up her 50 or so years of organizing and in many cases successful organizing. She's still here and she's still organizing. We've got the labor beat. lot of little items that we've picked up over the last couple of weeks relating to the labor movement. Labor history in two. We'll have a review of our labor cards. Remember, if you want labor cards, send to me, marusi2 at aol.com, and I'll send you a pack of labor cards. Send me a check or money order for five bucks, and you'll get the full set. 30 trading card size biographies and portraits of famous labor leaders. The set focuses on the labor movement in the United States uh, in the last century, say the 20th century. And uh, <coughs> Every, you know, every attempt was made when I designed the labor cards was to be inclusive, to include the very important women as well as the very important men, to include the very important Latino, Black, Asian, Pacific Islander, gay, straight, Keller, representing for handicapped people, 
So send it to me, marusi2 at aol.com. That's M-A-R-U-S-I and the number 2 at aol.com. Send me a check or a money order made out to William Morgan, a.k.a. The Bee. Coming at you from Mutiny Radio. We'll have our regular our regular features as well. We'll have Radio Labor. We'll have our campus correspondence. Um, labor History in Two. We'll have Francesca Fiorentini from Newsbroke talking about how capitalism funds climate change. That first set we had June Baez with uh, <coughs> Joe Hill. Joan Baez had the foresight and the awareness to <coughs> Thing Joe Hill at Woodstock, great quote unquote hippie convention music music concert, forty almost fifty years ago now. Fifty years ago, Joan Baez singing Joe Hill. She didn't sing one of her hits or her sweet folk songs. Uh, she sang Joe Hill. Maybe recognizing that the gathering there was really part of the labor movement. A bunch of working class kids getting together, trying to project into the future values like um, anti-war, um, friendship, uh, gender equality, etc., etc. Okay, I, I would like to get back to Killer Mike. Um, let's see if we can find him. Killer Mike. And we're going to play Insane. Let's see what the lyrics are, huh? You don't have to be afraid. You don't even have to be brave. Here we go with Killer Mike. Dressing hard, we should be finessing 
So that was Killer Mike. Let's see who Killer Mike is. Michael Santiago Rendere, better known as Killer Mike. Made his debut on Outcast LP Stanconi and later appeared on the Grammy winning award song The Whole World. Mike is known as a social and political activist, focusing on subjects including social inequality, police brutality, and systematic racism. In addition to addressing themes of racism, he's also delivered several lectures at colleges and universities. Talks about social justice, police misconduct, race relations, visible and vocal supporter of Bernie Sanders in 2016, supported Sanders in 2020. Okay, I first, he was born in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, on April 20th, so we're close to celebrating his birthday, huh? Son of a policeman and a florist mother. Briefly attended Morehouse College. Released his debut album, Monster. I remember a, a cut there about Ronald Reagan. Um, so, he's an outspoken social activist. He says, in response to the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, Mike said, I'm appalled that regular Americans are apathetic. I'm appalled that people choose to use the word thug as a code word for nigger. I'm appalled at everyday citizens. When will we as an American constituency tell our politicians enough's enough? Enough mayors supporting murderous police departments. Enough police chiefs having to give excuses for murderous police officers. Referring to the choking death of a man named Derek Garner. <coughs> Mike said in Billboard magazine, there's no reason that Mike Brown and Eric Garner are dead today, except bad policing, excessive force, and the hurt and capture play mentality many thrill-seeking cops have adapted. On November 24, 1914, Mike opened a set referring to a grand jury verdict that Daryl Wilson, the policeman, would not be charged with a crime in the shooting of Michael Brown. He made a heartfelt speech. Fanshot footage of the speech later went by viral. 2015, talking about the death of Freddie Gray, Mike says, For the people of Baltimore, I don't criticize rioting because I understand it. But after the fires died down, organize, strategize, and mobilize, like Ferguson have the opportunity to start anew. I don't have a solution because whoever's there will have to come.
come up with it. But we need community relations. And then quoting Martin Luther King, riots are the language of the unheard. Okay. May 29th, 2020. Mike spoke at a press conference with Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms in response to the killing of George Floyd and the ensuing protests in Atlanta and other major U.S. cities. On March 22nd, 2018, Mike appeared at NRA TV with host Colin Noir defending black gun ownership. He says it had been filmed the week prior to the March for Our Lives, yet released the weekend of the protest. He also stated that he told his children that if they participated in the national school walkout, he would expect them to leave the family home. He posted a video saying that the NRA had used his interview out of context saying he actually supports March for Our Lives while simultaneously advocating for gun ownership. So Mike's on both sides there of the uh, of the rifle association issue, of the gun issue. But, um, let's see. I wanted to get an interview about Jeff Bezos, that killer Mike. There we go. Three weeks ago. a better job of saying than that. That's damn good. Hi, my name is Michael Winter. I'm professionally known as Killer Mike, absolutely. Um, I am from a family that's out of Tuskegee, Alabama. We're the Gladmans and we're the Matthews. And I'd just like to say that as a proud Gladman, to be a part of the legacy of Alabama and be a part of the family, I'm deeply ashamed what this company is doing to Alabama. I'm ashamed that we still live in a country where we celebrate someone, and I'm, I, I qualify, I'm, I'm what they call the South Negro rich. I got enough money to last me my lifetime. I'm trying to have some left over for my kids, but I'm gonna have a lot of fun while I'm here. Jeff Bezos is beyond white folks rich. Jeff Bezos is what they called in the old South the planner class. And what was the planner class? The planner class.
class was the class of people who could afford to own plantations. And then they would use people that they had labeled as poor white people who were living this gypsy lives, going through the South working. They came up with a name for those poor white folks. They called them crackers. And they decided to distinguish those poor white people from the planter class, and they used them in the fields. And there was another people that they had brought over from Africa that they called niggers. And they worked both of these classes of peoples relentlessly in drudging heat in the South for the profit of the planter class. That planter class became enormously wealthy. They did trade that enriched not only the South and the Confederacy, but before and after that, this union. So this country was built as the Vice President of the Confederacy said, on the cornerstone, not only slavery, which he indicated, but an indentured servitude and a suppressive workplace that kept poor people poor by keeping them separated, keeping them humiliated, and keeping them down. Now, 120 years later, here I stand, a product of the legacy of Alabama, a product of a woman who grew up a sharecropper, my grandmother, later went on to become a nurse and start a family in Atlanta, and the exact conditions that she described to me when working on a field in Tuskegee, Alabama, unrelenting heat, the inability to go use the bathroom or to go use the laboratory in a decent time and be coming and come back and have a full day's work at Captain's View. All these things that a woman who worked in a sharecropping field told me are being said by workers here today. Michael, it is unrelentingly hot. We do not have access to air conditioning. If we get into work one minute late, they take an hour of our time off. And in that room is not just people who look like me. In that room is not just people who are black or brown or melanated. In that room is the diaspora that is Alabama. It is the tapestry that is America. It is black, white, woman, man, every other race and ethnic group. And we should be ashamed of ourselves for allowing companies to come in and pillage our people. We should be ashamed of ourselves for allowing our need and wants for a package to get there in two days to cause a woman with an injured arm to be told by a company, no matter your injury, you can exercise it off. So just think about when your child hurt themselves on a football field or a basketball field. Just think about the asshole coach that says, walk it off. Think about being promised better insurance when you come to work for a company and at the end of the better insurance, you go to the doctor and you still get a bill. Think about a woman having a heart attack and falling out behind you because she's so hot and tired. Think about people that saying it takes me 10 minutes to walk to my car after work. The richest man in the world can't even give us golf carts. We have to walk to our car and then we sit in our car and we're so fatigued and we're so tired that we just sit there. Think about an environment where that you walk out to the latest rap song because they tell you that's hip. They might play some Cardi B might play some Run the Jewels, might play some new little baby, and they work you like a slave. They might leave a sugary snack out for you to boost your metabolism enough to get through packing packages every nine seconds. I can't pick my nose in nine seconds. And you expected people to pick us something in nine seconds because we simply need it. So I'm gonna say everyone that works here, I'm going to say absolutely you should vote yes for that union. Because what the union does, what the union
does is give you an organized seat at the table. It allows you to plot, plan, strategize, organize, and mobilize. It allows you to say that pay in Alabama should be more than 16 bucks in a warehouse. There's no way we should be seeing below 20 bucks. Don't tell me you want to make an economic investment in my community, and then you come pay me fast food wages. You don't want an economic investment. You want to use me like an indentured servant to enrich the richest man in the world. Now, I've heard stories about other rich men. That was a rich man in Africa. His name was Mansa Musa. He had a kingdom called Mali. He was so rich when he took his pilgrimage to Mecca, he gave away gold all along. Messed up the world trade for about seven, eight years. But that is the heart of a truly rich man. The heart of a man who's worth $150 billion, who will not provide air conditioning, who will not provide an hour paid break, who penalizes people for being minute late, that is an evil, evil heart. That is a heart filled with greed and contempt for the worker. So on the behalf of the worker, I'm going to surpass their vote because I want their vote to go through. But if it doesn't, I won't be ordering from Amazon again. If that vote does not go through, if these conditions do not improve, then I'll just be walking on out to the store with my mask on. But what I won't do is by being a customer enable the richest man in the fastest growing company to use slave labor any longer. These people have been treated as badly as my grandmother when she sharecropped in this same state. These people have been denied the basic laboratory rights that you would allow any child going to school in an eight-hour day. These people, in the name of the convenience of shit getting dropped at our door, are being used and abused as though they're tools and their life can be thrown away because it's peak season. So what I'm going to tell the public, past the union, past Mr. Bezos, is if they won't treat their people right, who are we if we stand on the side of evil just to get a package to our door two days? So I want people after today to take a firm look in the mirror and look at your fellow state people, Look at your fellow Americans, and I want you to say this to yourself. Them having a master, good or evil, is not worth me getting a package in two days at my door. I'm just going to better plan in order two weeks earlier. But what I'm no longer going to do is support any evil because it's more convenient for me at the expense of these beautiful, wonderful, working their ass off people here in Bessemer, Alabama. I want to tell you, I love you. That was um, Killer Mike speaking at Bessemer, Alabama, a few days before the actual vote. The vote which lost, by the way. And um, we're going to find out why. We'll have an interview here with one of the organizers. Was it um, right there? Valentine for Lynn Peltier, which includes appearances by Winona LaDuke, Mumia Abu-Jamal, and Lawrence Ferlinghetti, among others. You know, at Amazon, could you... Uh, any other routes available? Sorry, that's the it. That's that it. And a strike for recognition. So let me explain the recognition process. If you want to be certified legally as a union... You're going to wind up having to get certified by the National Labor Relations Board. 
There are several options for how workers can form unions and get to certification under the National Labor Relations Board. The one that's most common is petitioning for an election. That's what we just saw in Alabama. The other options are that you either demand recognition by having all the workers walk out and go on strike or 90% of them walk off the job and, and it's called a strike for recognition. So literally the workers walk out and they say to the employer, we're not walking back in until you sign the certification because a majority of us have signed cards, certify the election, sign that you recognize a majority and we'll go to the National Relations Board and get certified. That's super rare these days, but the union I come out of and was trained by was actually pretty good at doing strikes for recognition. So it's, a, it's probably the most extreme and direct method. Like you walk out, you get the union. And that's still an option available to workers today, but it implies that you have to have really super serious majorities ready to take that kind of action, right? There's a sort of middle option, what's typically called a card check and neutrality campaign. And that's the more common one for people who are trying to avoid the election process because the election process opens you up to these incredibly vicious campaigns that we just saw in Alabama. So the middle option, which is card check, means that you're generally getting a majority of workers to sign a union card, and then you are working simultaneously in what's called a comprehensive campaign, what some people call a combination of an air war together with a ground war. So you have to get a majority of the workers, but along the way, you're, you're trying to pummel the corporation into acquiescing to a card check campaign and or to a neutrality agreement for an election. There's no simple way to talk about labor law, but that's the, the most simple breakdown is, first of all, it's all gonna have to go to the National Labor Relations Board to get certified, that's a legal word. Like the election in Alabama is not yet certified because there are objections to it right now. What we have is the vote tally and we know what the vote outcome was and that won't change. But it's not actually been certified yet. So there are serious ways that you can work with workers, starting with explaining the options to them. One is, hey, you know, at Amazon, could you get 100% of the workers to walk off the job and just say, we demand recognition, and were they gonna fire everyone on you know, Prime Day? That'd be kind of tricky, so it'd be really interesting, but it'd be really, really hard to get 100% of the workers to walk out, or even 90%, but it's been done. That's option one, strike for recognition. Option two, card check campaign. But that involves a pressure campaign that comes from all different angles, and they did this in Smithfield on the third campaign to win. You do a, what's called an air war and a ground war. Workers have to sign a majority of the authorization cards, and you have to back the employer into agreeing to recognize the union through what's called the card count. The other option, which is the one that people may or may not know the most about now, is the election process. And the rules there say that as long as 30% of the workers have signed an authorization calling for a union election, you can then go to the National Labor Relations Board, which is what happened in Alabama, and petition to hold an election. You must show what's called a showing of interest. That's 30% um, of workers or more. Now, this is where the interesting thing comes in. When I was trained to be an organizer, I was trained, you file for your election with 75% of workers. Never 30, not 40, what good organizers or organizers who are trained in the skill of fighting SOBs, union busters, what we know forever is that you file with no less than 75% because you understand the employer is going to shave at least 20%, if not 25% of the vote. So if you can't start with that high number, knowing what the loss is when the union busting campaign starts, you pretty much don't have a path to victory. That's what an experienced organizer believes. You don't have a path to victory against a union buster if you file with 
you know, at least, for God's sakes, a majority. That didn't happen in Alabama. They filed, apparently, with 34%. One of the confusions was 30% of what? Amazon went on a hiring spree. Apparently, the union was not aware of just how many people worked at this facility. Uh, you've been criticized for getting that allegedly wrong. So what's the story there? How many workers and what did or didn't they know? What I understand and was told by the union spokesperson who I interviewed is that they went public with the campaign on the 20th of October. They had achieved at least a showing of interest. So they, they were very confident they had 30% or more, and they petitioned for an election. And the petition, you have to write the workers you're petitioning for. What's the unit size when you're the union? This is all very Byzantine legal stuff, like super complicated. You've got to file a petition to hold the election. You fill in information. We're filing on 1,500 workers in the following bargaining unit. We have 30% or greater of a showing of interest. You, you file that form, you know, form number blah, blah with the agency. And then that triggers the process. So the National Labor Relations Board, from what I'm told, from the spokesperson, went to Amazon and said, hey, there's a petition filed for an election. Let's start talking election. That would be in mid-November. Very quickly, Amazon had Morgan Lewis, one of the infamous union busting law firms, Morgan Lewis was on the case. And Morgan Lewis, uh, apparently, and Amazon responded by saying, well, this is crazy because the petition says 1,500 workers, but there's 5,800 workers. So that's mid-November. Then the union had to make a choice. Could they actually get to at least 30% of the higher number? When I spoke to the union spokesperson and I said, what percent of cards did you have when you went into the hearing on the 20th of December? So the 20th of December, the hearing was set for the 20th of December. And when Amazon had said to the labor board, there's way more workers, Amazon contends there's 5,800 workers. So the union then had to figure out, could they get the higher number? And if you read a number of the interviews with a number of the organizers in the campaign, there's plenty of them all through the campaign. They were talking about how hard it was to run out and get a whole bunch more union authorization cards as fast as they had to, but they did it. So the hearing was set for the 20th of December. So when the 20th of December came, that's the National Labor Relations Board hearing where you go in to negotiate the rules for the election, what time it will be, is it a mail ballot or in-person voting, how many days of voting. You know, it's a very serious legal formal process about an election. I asked the union well, how many membership cards did they have, how many authorization cards did they have going into the hearing on December 20th. They refused to tell me. That's not unusual, by the way. I don't blame them for not telling me. On the other hand, the New York Times said in December that they had 2,000 cards. So I asked the union spokesperson in my interview with her, okay, I appreciate that you don't want to tell me what percent you filed with, but the New York Times said that you had 2,000 cards. So is that accurate? She said, yes. 2,000 cards is what percent of 5,800 workers? 34%. No path to victory at that point. No path to victory. You don't go up from when you file, you go down. What people like me and senior organizers who have won hard campaigns do at a moment like that is two days before or the day before that meeting, you call a big meeting of the worker committee and you have a hard conversation with the workers. And you say, brothers and sisters, or whatever you say these days, fellow people. Comrades. Um, <laughs> yeah, comrades. No, you say, you know, you, you have to have a hard conversation with, a, with the committee. And it, they're often really hard conversations. And you basically say to them, we don't have a path to victory based on having 34% of authorization cards. There is no path to victory. Even if we had 50%, I'd be having the conversation with the worker committee that said, this is a really hard conversation to have. We need to withdraw the petition. What the union did that was interesting was, they did have that period, basically a month across Thanksgiving, 
to try and figure out what percentage they could get. If you took the approach of saying to the workers, which is what organizers do in hard campaigns, you're, you're, you're brutally honest with the workers at every step. You can't sugarcoat this. You know what I mean? you, you got to say, you got to be willing to take some serious blows in this campaign because this is an A-level boss fight. You have to be honest with workers in hard campaigns. So either they weren't honest with the workers about what was going to happen in the campaign or they actually didn't know. And they went forward on a strategy that I didn't, I, I knew from January was a path to a defeat. Okay, now the dues question. Once the fight got going, Amazon made a big deal. They created their website, which looked really quite crude, I guess deliberately so, of how much you'd have to pay the union in dues and why waste all that money because Amazon's a nice employer now. Even some union people were saying, hey, it's a right-to-work state. You won't have to pay dues if you don't want to. What's wrong with that approach? Two things about this. One is I have been told by people on the campaign, allegedly they didn't actually run that message, but the, the truth well, they is... they said it in interviews. Exactly. Oh, no, I was going to say, look, the truth is the problem is the National Union president, in like 15 interviews, repeated that message all over the country, in, on NPR, to the Washington Post. I mean, there's just a series of places where he says out loud, we keep telling the workers, of course Amazon's lying, because you don't even have to pay dues in a right-to-work state. You don't even have to pay dues. That was another indication that the campaign <laughs> didn't have a path to victory because it's a cardinal mistake. And so what you say instead is a whole lot of things. First of all, if you're running a hard campaign, you've done a ton of inoculation, you've said to the workers, here's the 10 things the employer's gonna do to you, here's the 10 things they're gonna say, here's the order they're gonna say them in. That's how predictable an A-level boss fight is. We know the order that there's they're like gonna say them. There's a textbook for this. Yes, there's right. a textbook, including ones I've written, by the way. So yeah, there's a textbook. When I was taught to be an organizer, you're taught. In a hard boss fight, there's like four phases to the boss campaign. And in each phase, there's a series of steps that the boss takes. It starts with, oh my God, we had no idea you were upset. We're your best friends. We're gonna hold some meetings and fix things. You want a fan turned on? Awesome, let's turn the fan on. Let's get some AC, go. You know what I mean? Like, So the first phase of the boss fight is, we didn't have any idea you guys were upset and we're one big family, so let's just work this all out. Second phase is, you know, as soon as people aren't moving on that message, they move on to phase two. You know, then they move to doubt. They start to sow doubt. You start to raise a million questions about the union and what it does with its money. That's the doubt phase. Then you move to flat-out terror and intimidation. <laughs> well, you, know, you move off that and you start going to, like, vicious intimidation. In the end, you actually fire someone. So what's interesting is that no one was fired. In the end, that's probably because of the national attention that was focused on it, and it would look bad to fire them. And plus, the boss probably knew at that point they didn't need to fire anyone because the campaign was not going to be a winner. It's really important, actually, how we do a dues discussion. First, you have to do the inoculation. You cannot not say in phase two when doubt starts, they're going to start to run a rap about dues. They're going to put flyers up in the bathrooms that say this is how much you're going to spend on dues. They're going to start sending you emails. They're going to run captive audience meetings with you that say, do you know what the union does with its dues? So if you, this is totally predictable. So we do what's called inoculation. It's very important part of the process. If you have not, from every opening conversation, the first conversation with every worker, you inoculate about the phases of the boss campaign and what's coming. So that when the dues thing hits, the workers go, oh yeah, how'd the union know that they were gonna say that to us? Oh yeah, we knew that was coming. Like you have a very different reaction because you've taken on the dues discussion in what we call the inoculation phase. So you've inoculated first. Then, if it continues to come up, 
okay, that's fine. You've done inoculation. But then the boss is like, got a million flyers running about dues, and it says all sorts of crazy stuff on it. So then you moved in the conversation. You know, I like to say to workers, why do you think the employer is suddenly concerned about how you spend your money? That's one question I like to ask. Why do you think all of a sudden Amazon's managers are so concerned about the $500 that you're going to pay? And then you move into a very important discussion, which never, ever involves you won't have to pay dues to the union. You say, the truth is, you want to build the kind of powerful workers organization inside this facility that you're going to need to go up against them in the first contract campaign, you're damn right you're going to have to pay dues. It takes real resources to go after a really important employer. So dues are essential because you've explained to them, because you're being honest and transparent, what it takes to form the kind of union that's going to win the kind of changes that the workers want. And that starts with paying dues. The union seemed to um, be running a PR campaign. They had celebrity endorsers and such. Is that helpful? Not to the workers in the campaign. I mean, it's generally actually a huge distraction. If you're an organizer and there's a ton of media attention coming, you know, you're generally getting hugely distracted by a request to talk to a worker or can I talk to a worker? So it certainly doesn't help win the campaign. What does a worker in Alabama think about a bunch of outside Hollywood liberal types and Democrats saying they should have a union? There's nothing really logical about introducing like northern foreigners in a campaign where the boss is going to be running a message about they're not even from Alabama. They're not even from here. What is important is to get very serious local endorsements in the campaign. But like clergy and community exactly. groups? Exactly. Like, and did they do that? Well, they had the Socialist Alternative of the Democratic Socialists of America. I love those people, but... I uh, do, too. Uh, so do I. But it's but Alabama. not going to cut much ice. So one of the flyers I looked at had, please come to our meeting, community meeting, supporting the campaign. And it, and it you know, was a couple of socialist organizations on it. Great, but you're in Alabama trying to win a campaign. Sorry, that's not... <laughs> the local community that you need are ministers like there was a big issue made about the faith of the workers it was through a lot of the stories like if you were following the storyline a lot of faith they start the meeting with prayers that's great so if faith is important in the campaign you need local faith leaders in the community ministers clergy that's what i do in a campaign you need to talk to the workers and say oh whose church you and your family attend you got to be charting and systematizing oh which churches do you go to then you're also by the way with your research team doing a power structure analysis parallel to this to figure out which institutions in the community have power and then you're going to marry the data between what houses of faith the workers attend and which of those houses of faith are important and then you're going to get the workers themselves to go to their minister and say we're in this campaign it's getting kind of scary in there it'd be really great if you could write a letter to me and all of us saying you stand with the workers and so does god i've got about 25 of those letters from previous campaigns i'm happy to share with you that's what you do in a hard campaign that was a labor organizer and writer, Jane McAlevey. You can find her article in the Bessemer Fight on the Nation magazine's website. And now I'll turn things over to Brian edwards Teekert, and together we'll explain how you can celebrate KPFA's birthday. Brian? That was a fascinating interview with <clears throat> Jane McAlevey about what you do when you want to win. In Bessemer, uh, seems like there was never any real chance that the union would win. But they kept on anyway. Perhaps it's important even just to raise the situation, raise the question, bring up the idea of a union at, uh, at uh, Amazon. And so you try, you lose one, you... Uh, Learn from your mistakes. You look for a situation where you have more of a chance of winning.
right, well, let's play some music here. The um, fascinating interview is Francisco Herrera.
Central. Monday morning rail. Fifteen cars and fifteen restless riders. Three conductors and twenty-five sacks of mail. All along the southbound Odyssey, the train pulls out from Kankakee. and trains that have no names and graveyards filled with old black men and the graveyards of the rusty Sons of Pullman porters and the sons of engineers ride their father's magic carpet made of steel. And mothers love your babe to sleep, rocking to the gentle beat. And the rhythm of the rails is all they feel. Tennessee Halfway home We'll be there by morning Through the Mississippi darkness Rolling down to the sea But the towns And the people seem to just fade Into a bad dream And the steel rails Still ain't hers anew Conductors sang your songs again, and passengers will please refrain. This train has got the disappearing railroad blues.
Well, that was a mix set. <clears throat> Started out that one with uh, Francisco Herrera singing, Pero a mi no me crean. Don't, don't take my word for it, he says. Pero a mi no me crean. I saw it on TV. They say that uh, all those bombs they drop hit military targets, but somehow those military targets always end up in hospitals or schools and other things like that. Followed that up with um, a Triangle Shirtwaist fire song, sort of a month-long uh, tribute, tribute remembrance of those young women in the year 1910, who had to jump to their deaths in a fire because their bosses didn't want to spend any money on uh, safety precautions. Tried to get out of doors that were locked because the bosses didn't want them to uh, have breaks, have their breaks too long. 110 young men. And then just for the hell of it, I played City of New Orleans with the Highwaymen, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash. This is The B, and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio. And I want to turn right now the world of sports. Um, if you're a baseball fan at all, you probably noticed that uh, everybody in the on both teams, on all the teams, uh, actually, were wearing the same number. No, that wasn't a mistake. That wasn't a slip of a pin. <laughs> It was to honor um, a great player, also a great figure in the history of baseball and sports and in the history of our nation, named Jackie Robinson. If you don't know anything about Jackie Robinson, listen up. This is an interview he gave in 1972, I believe, uh, on the Dick Cabot Show. Here we go. Known as number 42, he broke through baseball's color barrier when he joined the Brooklyn Dodgers. He took the field for the team in 1947 and won the Rookie of the Year award that season. In 1997, Robinson's number was permanently retired by every team in Major League Baseball. Now, see him in an episode of The Dick Cavett Show, which first aired nearly nine months before his passing. This is Decade. Jackie Robinson has been called the most uh, exciting player of his time. Baseball fans remember 
particular pleasure his to drive pitchers wild uh, by just sort of standing on third base and threatening to steal home faster than you could say uh, his name probably he's the uh, man who broke the color line in baseball in 1947 seems like a long time ago he's a member of baseball's hall of fame of course and he's uh, left baseball and become a highly combative man in a number of areas and fields um, and uh, speaks his mind will you welcome please mr jackie robinson <laughs> Is it possible that it's been a quarter of a century since you first played in the major leagues? I can't believe Yeah, I guess I can believe it. It's, a, it's on the books, isn't it? It's every bit of that. It seems a lot longer. Yeah. yeah. Did you think things would come as far as they have? Or did you ever think it might not work? Well, there were times, certainly, when we thought it wouldn't work. But with the numbers of people that helped, yeah. we certainly thought that things would go as they have now, and even a lot further in terms of the front office and the managerial role and that kind of thing, but certainly baseball has got, got grown considerably and we're quite proud of the role that we played in it. It's incredible now to think of a sport that big that was all, uh, all non-black. Yes. I mean, uh, so many uh, black stars in baseball now. Well, you can't even count them today. I, it's amazing to me. I keep reading about certain ball players, and I, one day I look on television, and he's black. There's no longer a mention of Joe Blow, Negro ball player, this kind of thing, which is as it should be. I think they should be judged solely on their abilities out there, and the race shouldn't have anything to do with it. But uh, they always used to, of course, they mentioned it for several years. It, it was like, an, an, and in this corner, and a credit to his race on radio, they always used to say that, and that way you knew. Right. Uh, no, no white man was ever a credit to his race on radio. It was always, <laughs> always black. Uh, there must have been tough times. Uh, well, obviously, there must have been tough times, but well, I often wonder how you got what temper you have to have under control at times. So, Weren't things yelled at you? And oh, there were a number of things, but uh, I worked for a great guy. I don't think anybody um, could have done the job had it not been for Mr. Ricky. He was constantly advising and guiding, and I had so much confidence in him, I would have jumped off the bridge if he told me to do it. That's, uh, that's how much I believed in him. And he was uh, a man that was sincere and dedicated and willing to lend that helping hand that's so needed today in terms of the problems that we face in everyday life. Brent not enough Ricky. people are willing to do as Mr. Ricky did. What, did. what advice did he give you, though, about when you get out there and somebody's going to yell? Well, what was yelled at you? What kind of thing well, <laughs> you name them in terms of race, and they were yelled. E everything mm -hmm. it was quite vicious. I think it's Philadelphia Phillies. But Ben Chapman was perhaps the most vicious of any of the people in terms of name-calling. The team members? Some members of the team, but there was a fellow by the name of Lee Hanley on that ball club that came down to first base when I was there and apologized for the Phillies. He just says, I just want you to know all of us don't feel that way, but it's been led by the manager, and many of the guys are doing it simply because of instructions, I would have to imagine. But it did give me a good feeling to know that in spite of what was coming out of the Philly dugout, one guy would come down and say he's awfully sorry. And, and actually yeah. what they did was to sort of solidify the Brooklyn Ball Club because Mr. Ricky told me one of the things he said early was that when your ball club starts to take up for you in certain situations, our battle is most of the way won. And, mm -hmm. and I think that Philly incident started the Dodgers to kind of mold as a unit. Was that the worst, Philly? 
Yes, yeah. Philly was the worst. Uh, yeah. Ben Chapman was quite vicious. He wasn't only vicious as far as black people are concerned. I think he was anti-everything. Mm -hmm. so he, he, Where is he today? <laughs> God only knows. Yeah. Uh, did, um, but the team members, was this while you were on, when you came onto the field that they would yell things, or was it while the game was going on? I mean, could some of it have been just strategy <laughs> to help get well, they mad? Well, I'm sure that a lot of it was thought to be strategy, but... Mm -hmm. um, uh, it wasn't going to upset me. There was really too much to be done at that particular time in terms of breaking the baseball barrier to allow uh, name-calling to bother me. I keep remembering what my mother told me when I was a kid, although I've always been a guy that turned back. She said something about sticks and stones will break your bones, you know, and so mm -hmm. not to be concerned about it. Well, I didn't at the time, uh, and fortunate for the advice that uh, I got from Mr. Ricky and the, the encouragement and the guidance I got from my wife at home, we were able to, to withstand most of the kinds of situations that came up. We were prepared because of the numbers of people on our side. Yeah. I've heard that some of the uh, players since have felt guilty about not supporting you, that people have come up and said, I wish at the time I had uh, well, a little braver or something well like i that. think carl erskine who in my opinion probably had the most understanding of the whole situation he was mm -hmm. quite concerned uh, in roger khan's book boys of the summer he he points out that he would feel awfully guilty when we go into a restaurant in the south and all the white fellows would be able to go in and sit down and eat and the rest of us would have to sit in the bus and wait for a sandwich or something to be brought out to us and mm -hmm. he was guilty that he didn't participate more but I, I, when I think about guys like that, I have to think about lending a helping hand. The Pee Wee Reese's, for instance, a Southerner. And I, I really believe that it was a Southerner on our ball club that, that made the Ricky experiment much more of a success than anything else because I, I'm sure that all of their lives had heard that there was a great deal of difference between blacks and whites. And when they started to associate with us and they found out that all of the things people said, that you use the same locker rooms, the same showers, the same facilities, something's going to happen, mm -hmm. they lost that fear after a short time and they became, I guess, as aggressive in terms of the success as anybody. Of course, I feel a little good, too, about Dick because all that time was happening. Nothing was happening to me either, you know. So yeah. while they had their fears that things were going to happen to me, to them... I, I felt good because nothing was happening to me as well, so it made it kind of an even kind of a situation. But the whole situation in, in breaking the barrier was done simply because we had a purpose in mind to go out and win. Mm -hmm. And and first it was Montreal, then you moved into a town like Brooklyn, and it was just fantastic way the fans responded and reacted. They, they were a great bunch of people, and I've always been a very appreciative for the support and guidance that we got from fans as well as from Mr. Ricky and the family. Mm -hmm. Talking with Jackie Robinson, one of the most remarkable athletes, and uh, you're into so many other things now. You're doing it. What is the Jackie Robinson Construction Company? Well, we formed a construction company about five months ago with a fellow by the name of Arthur Sutton over in uh, New Jersey. Uh, one of the things that I've always felt was if we're really to solve our problems, we, we've got to do it interracially. We, we broke the barrier in baseball on an interracial basis. Mm. And Arthur Sutton, when he started talking about the construction business, we, we felt very strongly that if we could work it in the same manner we did in baseball, Arthur being a white fellow and, and Kaya Sales and I being the blacks in the organization, that we could help if we would be successful. And we're quite pleased that the construction company now is pretty much off the ground and we'll be doing some building in Brooklyn in the Bobby Kennedy uh, area that they tore down and built. We just feel that it's important 
to have an interracial construction company. It's important to have a black company in these times because there is a tremendous void. The is the construction union the one of the worst for... Uh, well, yes. But I, I believe that there are a lot of black subcontractors who have gel together and mold together and uh, they're beginning to develop a system where they can break this thing down. And I think the unions are beginning to understand they've got to do it as well. I see black construction workers in New York. Um, well, is, it, is it rare? Well, it's, I'm not it's, aware. It, it, I it's, just don't know. It's opening up a few years ago it was quite rare, but I mm -hmm. think pressures, and this is what has to happen, a lot of pressures have been applied to the different unions and, and they are opening up, but the construction people themselves are, I think, understanding their responsibility in terms of progress in this country. Could people be cooperating with you because it's an election year or am I reaching for something? Well, no, you're not reaching for anything. I, I think the reason why we uh, have been tremendously successful is it could be. Uh, a, an election year. We've gotten awfully good support from Washington. Uh, Mr. Nixon uh, and the Republicans and the power of the blacks down there from John Jenkins at Omby and Bob Brown who's the, uh, the assistant to the president right on down through the FHA have been of great assistance and they tell me they've gotten okay from, from Mr. Nixon to go ahead and do it. And in spite of the fact that we've been considerably critical of Mr. Nixon, uh, we have gotten the, the, the support. Governor Rockefeller, the Urban Development Corporation, I would have to think that this is perhaps the most, uh, the UDC is perhaps the most powerful agency in the country. The what? The Urban Development Urban Corporation. Urban Development, yeah. they, they, they are going to develop and build housing because of the tremendous need, and I think they're going to do it in low and middle income areas. And if we can put people in decent housing, give them an opportunity to feel secure. I think this is the answer to most of the problems of today. Kids don't want to go home to lousy housing where there are seven or eight kids to a couple of rooms and have to mm -hmm. sleep in shifts. And so they're in the street. Next thing you know, they're in trouble. If they give them decent housing, and I think it could help give them the kind of inspiration that's needed. Do you care if I ask you about anything at all? Anything you like. Well, uh, your son Jack was killed in a car accident right. not too long ago far back, and, and uh, well, there's a great amount of splashy publicity about his drug problems and all. Well, he did, Dick, have a very serious drug problem prior to his accident, yeah. but we are quite proud of the fact that our son, in spite of a very serious heroin problem, overcame it. It mm -hmm. took three tremendous years of his life, and it took a lot of work on our part, but I think love and understanding did it for us, and we were extremely proud that Jackie did overcome it and his automobile accident had absolutely nothing to do with drugs. Mm -hmm. He was working hard on a drug on a uh, jazz program so that he could repay Daytop in some way for the work that they had done in helping him re rehabilitate himself. And um, my daughter came up from Washington and David had just come home from Stanford and we thought we'd all get together that evening and uh, for dinner, but Jackie had on that Wednesday taught a, a drug program every Wednesday evening. Mm -hmm. And instead of coming home that night, as he said he was, to visit with Sharon and David and myself, my wife had gone to our uh, uh, convention up in Massachusetts, and so that the four of us were going to get together at home. He went back up to New Haven, and uh, when David uh, found out he'd gone to New Haven or didn't come home at 10 o'clock, he told Sharon to go on to bed because Jackie would be coming in very late. And he was just exhausted, and um, I checked for my own self with Kenny Williams up at Daytop to find out 
about Jack, and he says the one thing you can rest assured on, he was cle clean as far as drugs were concerned. So I've left it there. I'm perfectly willing because uh, I, I think it's one of the most difficult things that we have today, and I think our federal government is putting its priorities in the wrong place. When our youngsters have so many rocks in their heads in forms of drugs, we're sending people up to the moon, sending billions to get people up to bring rocks home to the moon and just a minute amount of money here on earth to help our young people. And if this country is to survive, we've got to deal with that drug program because it's pretty obvious, at least as far as I'm concerned, that every youngster in this country, in one way or the other, unless we do something about this problem, is going to come into contact with marijuana or heroin or some kind of drug in some kind of way. And unless we change our priorities, unless we put a great deal of emphasis on helping our young people, I just can't see the drug pro pro problem diminishing in the way that it should. And it is, to me, the worst problem that we have in this country today, <laughs> even worse than the race problem. Have you spoken to your friends in Washington about trying to get more done about that? Well, we thought that uh, when we talked to Bowie Hume, the commissioner of baseball, and Joe Reichler, that something was going to be done more than it is. I think baseball and football, when they go out and send their kids uh, out to the, on television and say, this is the way I'd like to rack up the drug program, you know, it means absolutely nothing because 99% of the kids who are involved in drugs aren't looking at that program, and it doesn't <laughs> touch them. It doesn't mean a thing to them. But I, I would certainly have loved to have seen baseball because the kids today are the, the, the fans in the stands tomorrow, you know. If baseball could have put on a game of, for the drug program to build an institution to help these kids, now I think they're making a concrete uh, contribution to, to the problem. So while we've talked to them about it, certainly not, a great, not enough has been done. New York. New York does more in terms of drugs than the federal, whole federal government does. And I think there's a recognition here in New York in terms of the drug program more so than there is in the rest of the country. Perhaps it's because we have the greatest problem, but certainly there's more has been done. I don't say it's been that successful, but more has been done than anything else. Well, we will be back right after this message. That was an interview with um, Jackie Robinson. And we want to talk about people's work. Uh, Robinson came into the major leagues in 1947 at a time when <coughs> baseball was effectively segregated. A whole generation of great black players never got to play baseball on a national national summit like the major leagues and uh, Robinson changed all that he wasn't the first black player there were black players in the 1880s and 90s but that was the time when the, the game was effectively closed to black players so Robinson changed that, and I think one thing I, as a baseball fan, uh, think that was a lot of times people forget about what a great player Robinson was uh, and how he did change the game and affect the game of baseball. So let's listen to a little bit of... Uh, Labor History in Two. 
in labor history, the year was 1919. That was the day the telephone girls, as they were called, walked out on strike against New England Bell, essentially crippling communications in five New England states. It was considered the most massive strike of women workers since the uprising of the 20,000 in 1909. They were members of the all-women National Telephone Operators Department of the IBEW. Historian Stephen Norwood devoted many pages to the strike in his book, Labor's Flaming Youth. The government had taken over the nation's telephone and telegraph industries during World War I and placed it under the control of Postmaster General Albert Burleson. Just days earlier, thousands of angry women who worked in the Boston exchanges packed Faneuil Hall demanding immediate strike action. Julia O'Connor, the leader of the Telephone Operators Union, called for the strike on this day at 7 a.m. The union demanded a 60% wage increase and full scale to be reached after four years instead of seven. Union and non-union alike responded to the strike call and walked off the job, establishing 24-hour picketing. On the second day of the strike, over 1,000 striking telephone operators marched through the streets of Boston and were cheered on by returning soldiers. O'Connor organized picketing around the Boston hotels where out-of-town strike breakers were housed. Unionized service workers across the city denied services to the scab. Postmaster Burleson smeared the striking women as unpatriotic and threatened to replace them with returning soldiers. The soldiers, however, sided with the telephone operators. After five days, the union won direct bargaining rights and a $4 a week raise. The strike was considered one of the few post-World War I strikes to end in victory. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1975. That was the day union representatives at Bunker Hill Mining Company in Kellogg, Idaho, were notified of a policy change. The lead and zinc producer had decided to exclude fertile women from working in lead-exposed environments. Women workers had to provide a doctor's note stating they were infertile, postmenopausal, or had been sterilized. Otherwise, they would be transferred to safer departments at a substantial loss in pay. 29 women took the transfer, while at least three opted for sterilization. During World War II, companies like Bunker Hill promised millions of women workers that they would eliminate hazards through engineering controls. In the 1970s, a new wave of women gained work in several industries that used occupational safety language to implement exclusionary policies like the one at Bunker Hill. These took the form of outright bans on hiring of women, either altogether or in many departments considered too toxic for women of childbearing years. It meant the real loss of well over 100,000 potential industrial jobs for women. Employers could have provided actual protection through better medical coverage and benefits, installation of engineering controls, or protections to include men's reproductive health. Instead, these policies served to roll back economic and civil rights of women workers, regardless of whether they were mothers or ever planned to be. The women appealed to their unions, state and federal commissions, and OSHA, but faced an uphill battle. OSHA initially fined Bunker Hill for outstanding violations and its sterilization policies, but dropped the case once Ronald Reagan took office. 
The women eventually won wage equivalency in their new jobs, but women working in heavy industry would continue to battle such policies for more than a decade. Labor History in Two brought to you by Gridiron Labor History and Sandra the Smith Show. Okay, welcome back. That was uh, Rick Smith with his Labor History in Two. And uh, right now we're going to skip to our feature with uh, the campus correspondent. And we have such a good luck. They're here in person today. Good morning. Good morning. Let me turn you on here. Good morning. Good morning. Vita Castaneda Morgan and Yemen Kabaz coming Hello. down visiting from uh, UC Berkeley, UC Berkeley, that's me. <laughs> that's where you are. <laughs> um, UC Davis. Your farm. And every week what we do is um, discuss an issue from their point of view, a national issue from their point of view. And uh, today I want to discuss the issue of immigration and get your take on it. Um, Looks like Mr. Biden is sort of backtracking now, leaving a lot of the Trump-era policies in place. Um, so what's your take on it, Vita? Would you, would you start? I mean, are you aware of what's going on in immigration? Yeah, I am, and I heard that he kept some of the contracts with those, like, I don't know if they're private prisons or something like that, and all these things. So um, I think... You know, it's kind of the same as before, obviously, and that's what people were saying would happen with these important issues. And I'm not really sure uh, how it's going to turn out or what, but it is looking really, really bad. And I, I had told you last time I came on here, I think that they were thinking of housing some of the children um, at, like, Ames NASA Research Center, like at Moffett Boulevard there. So... I don't know. It seems crazy. I heard that weren't they letting like kids in at one point, but not the parents? Uh, yeah. Yeah, That's and what's what happening heard. now is there are a lot of unaccompanied kids. Right. And the Biden administration claims that they're trying to place those kids with relatives or um, friends, but uh, yeah. it's not really happening. Right. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of confused as to what the end game of all this is because it seems like it's going to end really bad. Like all these kids being detained and people not being able to come in. Because I had heard he was also going to let people from Syria in and Middle Eastern countries. And now they're backing away from that. Too. Backing away from that. Yeah. So, I feel like they just need yeah. to build the infrastructure for them to profit the right way. And I don't think that, you know, having a different president is is going to change the infrastructure they're building uh, with these people. I feel like um, once they start catching up, I don't know um, who's going to invest in what private uh, concentration camps or whatever it is. <laughs> right, you said people. that right. Yeah, and Noam Chomsky said too like a while ago, and I always liked this, but he said that it seems like the center is always going to the right every year. Like, it keeps going to the right. So even the people who are on the left are, like, so far right on a lot of issues that it's, like, 
un- uh like undiscernible now who's on the left and who's on the right. So even though Biden's supposed to be on the left, he's doing these things that are spinning class. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's yeah. definitely picking and choosing. We also have to remember that the whole issue of family separation, for example, originated uh, during the Obama administration. Oh, wow. And, of course, uh, all through the Trump administration, everyone was very upset, you know, wringing their hands. uh, That's all sort of uh, died down now. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. um, We've got about five minutes left here. And I understand that you, Yaman, um, are involved with Bitcoin. Uh, yes. The, uh, Bitcoin investing. The new world currency. I have to admit that, you know, me and my contemporaries are a little stumped as to what Bitcoin is. So could you give me a sort of an ABC of Bitcoin and let me know what... Yeah, totally. Um, I think that... Uh, will actually find this very easy to understand um, just let's go back to how money has evolved in the past hundred years right we've went from what a gold to um, well the Federal Reserve and then taking taking gold off of the federal like taking gold off the same getting off the gold standard and then just you know transferring to imaginary money right and then you have these pieces of papers which were notes and these notes said that you know they're equivalent they, if you bring them in we'll cash you out and it, that 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 sort of went away um, as into now it's just a piece of paper and it's a contract between you and the government, right? So now you can see, oh, I just have gold on my hand, and now I'm having paying money with paper, right? And then debit cards come in, and then you're paying money with a piece of plastic. So we all went through that, right? So now what we have is the whole financial system is transferring to an online protocol where we don't need paper, we don't need any of that, and and the reason. So, so the reason this is happening is because when you do it online with the technology of the blockchain, which is called, which is with the second coming of the internet, um, it keeps a ledger, keeps tabs. You know, you've got an honest middleman keeping tabs of everything. And that might seem menial when I talk about it, but the idea of removing the middleman between every type of transaction that you can possibly make revolutionized almost like many of the processes that we do today. Specifically, let's talk about banking because that's the use case where I can go straight into and you guys can understand. We can go to voting, you know, to voting ballot. The blockchain can keep track digitally with no, it's a trustless ledger. So combine those two words together. You know, trustless needs no, nobody to trust. And a ledger, it's just a tab. So banks keep tabs of our money. So that's why we trust them and, you know, we use them and all that. But they're not trustworthy anymore because they're, you know, operating seedily. The blockchain allows for everything to be public, right? So you cannot hide from the blockchain. So it's come, it's come up with a new phenomenon called decentralized finance, coined DeFi. So essentially banks exist on the internet with no CEO, no management company, just the blockchain. And many of them right now are starting to have, you know, both aspects of the decentralized blockchain with management. But an example for, you know, we have Uniswap.org, right? You can go in there and trade any asset um, with nothing. Just connect your digital wallet. You know, compli- it's not that complicated. Just imagine, you know, you have a digital wallet and you put your digital funds in there. 
Um, and then you can trade any asset. And it's away from Wall Street, away from anything. You can be in Africa, create a cryptocurrency that has some value use case, you know. And you can sell it that same second. And then you can also scam everybody. So that's the that's what comes with decentralization. There's no owner behind it. So it can revolutionize finance in many ways. Banking, the unbanked, right? There's so many unbanked people in the world. So big banks are starting starting to get into it. Nations are starting to get into Bitcoin, realizing it's this digital store of value. We can't question anymore why it's worth sixty thousand because you have to accept the fact that people have given it worth that worth that value last year i think about last year i came in and i was saying you know bitcoin at six thousand is still a good buy you know what i mean it's still good it's still a good price it's at sixty thousand today so we have to just take that for granted people have given it value and it's a digital store of value the digital gold and you know i'm gonna get straight into it this is labor and love for me this all seems as a way to siphon off more money from the from the from the poor right so like you have big investors coming in buying at the right prices doing all their analysis their technicals their fundamentals they know everything you have people like us you know you, you know a young a young kid might take me wrong and put all his savings into bitcoin right now and he might go to 30,000 he might sell on the way down and then that's when the whales are buying in so it seems to me like you know the fools pay in and then the whales pay out right so and it's just a, it's a cycle that's been happening for 20 and, 2011, 13, and then lately 17, and now, and it's kind of scary, but if you know what you're doing, on the way up, when, when Bitcoin does reach to a million dollars, you know, in the future, whether it's a decade or two, um, you'll have your allocation of the world's currency, right? <coughs> and you'll, you'll be able to buy a house, go out, spend money, you know, all sorts of things. So let me end it with this, because I know we're short on time. Okay. Bitcoin is here to replace the traditional finance system into a one a one world unified digital currency system. Whether it's good or bad, you know that's for everybody to, to, to decide on their own. And the fact of the matter is, it's here to stay, and it's here to replace traditional finance with digital finance. Whether it's under the guise of revolution as a response to the two thousand eight crisis, or whether it truly is just you know another way to control the whole financial system with one currency. We don't know, but it's here to stay. Okay, well, thank you very, thank you very much. <coughs> I hope you can come back next week because I got so many questions. Got it. I'll be here. <coughs> so those are our campus correspondents from UC Davis, Vita Castaneda Morgan, and Yemen Kavaz. And next week we'll tackle another issue, major issue that is part of the public uh, conversation. Right now, this is Labor and Love signing off. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. See you next week.
for the seas of mutiny radio.fm from there you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures they've got live comedy to small business advice lgbtq friendly to sports vinyl to gutter punk Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> As the world gets wackier and less predictable in every way, it is more important than ever for us to all remember our roots. We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors hadn't had the capacity and the skills to take care of themselves and their communities using the resources in the natural world around them and their own two hands. My name is Wonia Tebow of Buckskin Revolution and Alone Season 6, and I started Buckskin Revolution not just to empower people with a wider range of skills to meet their basic needs, but also to inspire them with a sense of fulfillment and connection that comes with living a little closer to the earth and using our bodies, our minds, and our very DNA for what they evolved to do to help us thrive without the need for modern technology and industry. If that sounds appealing to you, I hope you'll join me for the Fall 2020 Buckskin Revolution Online Skills Gathering, an eight-week learning experience designed to work within any schedule. It involves pre-recorded classes, live interactive sessions, and online community learning support from both myself and your fellow students. The need for these skills has never been more pressing, and Buckskin Revolution is working hard to bring them to you. I hope you can join us. Get connected with yourself and the world around you at buckskinrevolution.com. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience, like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... Uh, aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by uh, Here's you. his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch
San Francisco, what are you doing this week? Come join Mutiny Radio Presents for four different comedy shows supporting local businesses in the Mission District and beyond. On Sunday, join us in the Tenderloin at Resolute Wine Bar, 678 Geary, for Barrel of Laughs at Resolute, an amazing comedy show with the best wines curated by Resolute. On Wednesdays, join us at Asiento at and 21st and Bryant for dinner and a show at Asiento. Delicious tapas, incredible drinks, hilarious comedy Wednesday nights at 7.30. On Fridays at 7 o'clock, join us outside mutinyradio.fm here at 21st and Florida, 7 o'clock for outdoor comedy, socially distanced in the street. And Saturdays, join us at Atlas Cafe SF at 20th and Alabama for Titans of Comedy every Saturday at 2 o'clock. Hey, keep supporting local businesses and comedy here in San Francisco with your friends at Mutiny Radio. St. Valentine's Day Mascara, streaming live on Facebook Sunday, February 14th, 11 a.m., an international affair hosted by Ms. Noir. Do you crave a carnal couple? Are you longing for some lecherous lines? Is it seduction from a sultry sonnet that you're seeking? Or would you rather be ravaged by a rhythm and bride? Care to venture a little voyeuristic versification with this little ability? Put this why not slate your literary lessons in a personal one-on-one? St. Valentine's Day Mascara. In a personal one-on-one. St. Valentine's Day Mascara. St. Valentine's Day Mascara. St. Valentine's Day Mascara. 14th of February 2021. 11am PST. Facebook Live. A date for everyone. Hosted by Ms. Noir. The Ministry of Lava manages our national lava resources to ensure that we will always have a steady supply of lava to operate the nation's active volcanoes, which in turn power our cities and methamphetamine labs. As a matter of national security, we need to reduce our dependence on foreign lava, which means an expansion of domestic lava drilling. As your chancellor, I will build lava wells all over the country as well as secure access to more lava fields by invading Hawaii. Imagine orange gold spurting out from school playgrounds on the Great Plains and illuminating the Nebraska sky like fireworks on the 4th of July. Magma oozing over the rolling hills of Kentucky. Volcanic ash settling gently over homes in New England like fresh gray snow. If you want global lava markets to continue to be dominated by terriblest regimes like Iceland, Chile, and the Philippines, vote for my opponent, who sits in their back pocket as comfortably as Pahoehoe on the slopes of Kilauea. If you want the United States to stay competitive in the era of peak lava and beyond, then take a chance on the Chancellor.
Are you looking for local handcrafted leather goods? Look no further than Skin on Skins, a local mission a leather working shop. All original pieces handcrafted for you. Jackets, belts, purses, jewelry, everything made out of leather. You need your bicycle seat fixed? You want it in cool leather? Under can do it. You have a motorcycle that you want to fit out with side bags and cool stuff? Talk to Under. Go to SkinOnSkins.com. That's S-K-I-N-O-N-S-K-I-N-S.com. You just went to Folsom Street Fair and you don't have enough leather? Go see Under. Everything is handcrafted and understated quality. Fine leather handcrafted goods for all of your needs. He also does fixes. Maybe you love that jacket. He'll put the zipper back in. Talk to Under at SkinOnSkins.com. At 20th and Mission, check him out at SkinOnSkins.com. L-S-D, FAP, acid and fapping, fapping and acid, acid fapping, fapping and acid, fap, 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 acid. Thank you, that song is called Acid and Fapping. What is flat black pl- I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, Write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders. Look good on camera. End all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. 